Amen. Thanks, Janine. Well, you and I uh, have probably worshipped in adverse conditions before. I know I have. Um, I've worshipped outside in terrible conditions, blistering heat and snow and sleet and rain and below freezing temperatures. And if you think about worship as ascribing value or ascribing worth or uh, and just giving your love and your attention and your affection to something, uh, all those conditions I've described usually involve uh, sport. <laughs> all right, I've worshiped at the altar of uh, Oklahoma College football. I remember the OU Nebraska football game, I think 1988, it was a blizzard, a sleet storm, and me and 85,000 people worshipped the football team in uh, driving sleet for four and a half hours, and we were glad to do it, and we were high-fiving, and we were hugging, and we were cheering. Uh, I've been to baseball games in like scorching heat with sweat dripping in places it's not supposed to drip and you know been through all kinds of terrible experiences one of the first eagles games i went to i couldn't feel my fingers or my toes i had these breakable kind of heat things that you stick in your boots and uh, you know we've worshiped in worse conditions it just matters what the object of our worship was right so I'm proud of you, the few, the proud, the remnant. You guys are okay, too, on the live stream. You're at home enjoying the warmth and the dryness of your living room. Uh, you're okay, too. We're not, we're not trying to make you feel bad, but I do remember a woman named Irina Yagelnicki. A few years ago, she came and visited <clears throat> Ridgeline, and she described to us what worship was like in a closed country where Christianity was under persecution and illegal for the believers to gather for public worship. And she described a scene in which they would wake up before sunrise uh, on a morning, and they would go to a secret location, a designated place in blizzard conditions, and they would trek through snow, being careful to wipe their footprints behind them unless they were being tracked, finding a little clearing in a forested area where a handful of believers just like this would gather around a fire pit, singing in hushed voices and listening to the Word of God preached. Believers here today at Ridgeline the persecuted church gathers under conditions far more terribly than this. And so uh, I'm glad this puts us in a little bit of perspective. We're, of course, I'm under a portico. <laughs> Safe, you're out there. <laughs> so it's easy for me to talk about how much you're suffering while I'm uh, comfortable under here. I'm a little cold. If somebody could bring a heater up, that would be great. Um, <laughs> But we're going to gather today, and we're going to worship, and we're going to hear the Word of God. So just let me pray for us as we endure worship and the Word in a little bit of drizzle on a cool August morning. Lord Jesus, I was thinking this week, in, as I was reading through Genesis chapter 18, in that passage, Abraham is waiting by the heat of the day and the opening of his tent when he sees you and two angels walking by and he runs to you and he says, Oh Lord, if we have found favor in your sight, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass me by, but stay and dwell for a while with your servant. 
And that became a prayer for me this week. Lord, as we gather today, if we have found favor in your sight, do not pass us by. Do not pass us by, but dwell with us. Allow us to experience your nearness and your presence and rest a while here with your servants that we may experience your peace and your presence today. As we open your word, we pray alongside with Moses from Exodus 34 that you would show us your glory. There's something amazing when believers gather around your word, around worship, around the exaltation of Jesus. There's something amazing that happens where you choose to make your glory known. So we pray that as we open your word together, amongst a group of people that you have called together, that we may build each other up, that we may pray for one another, that we may bear each other's burdens, that we may uh, worship together, that we may keep each other accountable. As we do that together today, this morning, even under these tents, even a little bit soaked, would you show us your glory in the preaching of your word, that we may be instructed by it, that we may learn of it, that we may be convicted, that we may experience grace, that we may experience mercy, and that we may receive a blessing from you. The blessing that you promised in Revelation 1, 3, blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and takes to heart what is written in it. Blessed are the readers and the hearers who pay attention to your word today. So we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us ears to hear. Amen. We'll turn to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at Mark 14, just the first 11 verses. It's a very small text today, a short text, but a thick text, a very rich text. So let's read together Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. The Word of God says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
That's our text, verses 1 through 11, and we're limiting our attention to these 11 verses. We'll allow some of the other synoptic gospels and the, uh, the Word of God to, to bear relevance on this text as well. But we're going to focus on these 11 verses. And as we do, uh, let me just set it up this way. You know, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of biblical meditation involves the practice of filling your mind, right? When you think about meditation, maybe you think about Eastern meditation, and Eastern meditation teaches something like emptying your mind and putting yourself in a position where all of your thoughts go away. And biblical Christian meditation couldn't be any more different. The discipline of biblical meditation is to take a passage of Scripture and to fill your mind with it, to dwell on a passage, to think of it in a hundred different ways, in a hundred different scenarios, to ponder, to picture, to pray over it, to fast over it, to think about it, to chew on it in such a way that your mind is saturated with that text. Biblical meditation is like... Um, if Eastern meditation is taking a dry sponge and wringing every thought out of it so that there's nothing in it, scriptural meditation is taking that same sponge and plunging it deep into a bucket of water, the Word of God, and, and so saturating it that, that when you lift that sponge, your mind, out of the Word, the Word oozes out of every part of that sponge. That's what we are trying to get at. And so when you meditate on a passage of Scripture, you look at it from every angle, you picture it, you think deeply about it, you pray over it, you do all these things, and you ask these questions of it. If I was a painter and I had a brush in my hand, how would I paint this scene? Would I use uh, different colors and textures here and there? How would the canvas look as I dwell on this scene here? If I were writing a novel, what words would I use to describe? Not to tell, but to show. How would I show what the air felt like and what the breeze felt like and what it smelled like in Simon the leper's house, what the food smelled like, what, what's, what was the smell when the woman broke the alabaster jar and the perfume filled the house? If I were making a movie, what lighting would I use? What camera angles? What would the characters be wearing? This all is involved in biblical meditation. How do you saturate your mind with Scripture? You fill your mind with the Word and you limit yourself to the text that you're studying so that you have an intimacy with the Word of God and it becomes a part of the fabric of your thinking. And there's a danger in biblical meditation in that you can equate your imagination with the Word of God. But biblical meditation done right places the Word as the primary focus of your attention. And all of your imagination and all of that goes into your meditation on it serves the Word. It is not equal to the Word. That is, the Lord will give you revelation about a text, but it is not the text. Your revelation informs the text and gives you understanding about the text. You already know how to meditate, by the way. Uh, you already know how to biblically meditate. You just don't know it maybe in this Word. But if you've ever worried about something or someone, if you've ever felt anxiety or concern, if you've ever been overly anxious or nervous, you already know how to meditate, but just in an unhealthy way, right? 
If you haven't prayed or believed God or released something or someone to the Lord and to his sovereign care, you already meditate in that way. It's just called anxiety or worry um, or stress in some ways. But biblical meditation is the same thing. It's the practice of now doing that in a healthy way by applying those same thoughts and time and attention to the word of God. Now, I say all that to say some passages are easier to meditate on than others, right? Randomly choose a text in Leviticus and choose a narrative like this passage here in Mark. And you're going to find that thoughts come really easy when you read a passage like this. You can really taste and see and understand a passage when the narrative is very clear in a section like this. Some texts are easier to do, but this text is so picturesque. It's so descriptive. There's so much detail here uh, that it doesn't take long for you. If you give yourself a little bit of time and attention, you can picture this text really deeply. Uh, you can picture it as a movie script. It's like a Greek tragedy, right? The opening scene, religious, elite, powerful, wealthy, political leaders are in a quiet, dark place plotting Jesus's arrest and his assassination. Can you see that? And then the scene changes from that dark place of power into a very humble place, Simon the leper. What kind of a home could Simon the leper have owned? A leper was required to walk in lonely places and to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that no one would be in danger of touching him. This was a person who was isolated and lonely and lived on the outskirts. A place called Bethany was two miles away from Jerusalem, uh, a small suburb, a small village outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is dwelling inside this small place with him this night for a meal. This texture and variety of characters, Simon the leper, Mary the broken woman, who is now giving this great extravagant gift, the rich, the powerful, this story lends itself really easily to being able to picture it in your mind's eye. But in spite of the vividness with which we can read this passage of Scripture, I want you to see really clearly that the main pastoral point, the main idea that I want to get across to you this morning as we gather to hear this text today, I want you and I to, at the end of our time together, to take stock and to assess just how much you value Jesus. How much do you value Jesus? The chief priests, the scribes, Jesus was worthless. Someone to get rid of quickly. Judas, Jesus was so worthless, he would only take 30 pieces of silver for him. But to Mary, the woman who breaks the alabaster jar of ointment, he is in this moment worth a year's wages. What's Jesus worth to you? How extravagant are you in your adoration for Jesus? So let's go back through the text and we'll look at these 11 verses together and let's get a greater understanding so that we can better assess how much you value Jesus in your devotional life today. Verses 1 and 2 describe the opening scene. The two days before the Passover, that's probably a Tuesday night. The Jews' calendar, they mark their day starting at 6 p.m. on an evening. That starts a day. We think of a day as daylight when the sun rises. That's a new day. But to the Jews, uh, Shabbat or Sabbath would have been observed on a Friday night at 6 p.m. So uh, in the evening, that's when the uh, day would have started. So a new day starts for Jesus on this 
maybe Tuesday night, a few days. He says two days before the Passover feast, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have been a Thursday night uh, in our, by our calendar, if, if I'm counting correctly. That's what's happening. So it's just two days before Jesus's, um, three days before Jesus's crucifixion, right? So things are getting very real for him. He has been in battle, in dialogue, as we looked at uh, Mark chapter 13. Jesus has been fighting the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes. He's been doing battle all this long day, maybe on this Tuesday. And so when, when they realized they couldn't uh, combat Jesus, they couldn't defeat him, now they're gathering together under the, the protection of darkness, asking, how do we arrest him by stealth and kill him? They want to assassinate Jesus. So don't let the irony be lost on you here. The religious leaders, who the scribes who are experts in the law, specifically all the commandments in Scripture, but, but you know, generally the Ten Commandments, which says do not commit murder, are plotting in a room how to commit murder. They understand the scripture, have no other idols before you, and yet they're trying to kill the one true God. They understand that the goal was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet they're taking that one true God and they're plotting how to murder him. Don't let that irony be lost on you. They run the temple, the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, they're experts in the word of God, spiritual leaders and advisors through Israel, and they're trying to kill Jesus secretly. But they also say not during the feast. And to understand this, you have to understand what's going on in Jerusalem. During the Passover, millions of Jewish people from all around the world would flock into Jerusalem on this sort of pilgrimage to be close to the presence of God. They're seeking God. They want to be near God. They live far away. And the best they can do is to gather in little synagogues and small groups to read the Old Testament, what we understand as the Old Testament, Moses, all around their little communities. But a few times a year, they would travel together in this massive reunion. And they would come together and they would worship at the, the closest they could get to the presence of God. A few years ago when I went to Jerusalem, uh, we found, um, uh, we got there on a Friday night so that we could see the Sabbath. And when we got there, you find uh, Jewish people flocking into the Western Wall, trying to get as close to where they understood the presence of God to physically be on the earth as they could. They would press themselves up against the wall. They would take little prayers written on pieces of paper and tuck them in the wall as close in the cracks, as close to where they felt like the presence of God was. They did all that so that they could be near to God. So Jerusalem is overflowing with people who want to be close to God. Now you can identify with that, right? People come to church for all kinds of reasons. The purest motive that people come to church are those who just simply say, I need to hear from God today. I just need to be near to the Lord. I need to be closer to God. Uh, many of you here today are, have that goal in mind. You just need to be touched by the Lord. You need to hear a word from Him. You need to be in His presence today. And this is as close as you can get. That's what Jerusalem would have been like. But you also need to understand the danger of an uproar. They're afraid of the crowds because Jerusalem and all of Israel is occupied by a foreign army, and that foreign army is armed and dangerous, right? The Roman army wants to kill 
uh, and dispel any riots that rises up to make threat against the Roman Empire. And so they're always on riot alert. If you think about images of our police in the United States of America in riot gear, arming around protesters, trying to keep a, a semblance of peace so that people can gather. That's the situation in Israel. The Roman occupying army are everywhere, swords, shields, thousands of soldiers trying to keep peace and keep riots out. And so the Jew, Jewish leaders and authorities, they know that if this crowd who loves Jesus, if they arrest him publicly, then they're going to uproar and they're going to riot and they're going to lose that tension, that little balance of peace that the Israelites experience with um, in the midst of their occupation. So that's the scene. Look at verse 3. Jesus now is outside of the city. It's probably evening. Uh, he's at Bethany, which is, like I said earlier, is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's in the house of Simon the leper. Uh, and he's reclining at a table. Now there's a low table. We, they don't eat the way we would have eaten. They would sit on cushions. Uh, when it says they recline, they would uh, typically um, all be around an area where food would be laid out. They would be leaning in together, maybe on an elbow with their feet away from the table. And they would have been leaning in and all eating out of a common um, table off the middle. And they would be scooping and eating. But they would be uh, shoulder to shoulder around a table area. Area. That was a custom of eating. Um, and so when Jesus says they're reclining at a table, uh, for this woman to come in uh, with an alabaster flask, alabaster is a marble-like material, a typical vessel. Um, if you were to have a lamp, it would have been just a piece of clay that was baked and shaped into a, lam a lamp or a lantern type thing, and they would have put oil in it, uh, and it would have had a, uh, it would have looked kind of like a genie Aladdin kind of bottle thing, if you can picture that, but made out of, made out of clay. They would have, have painted it. There were some that were more ornate than others, but this is an alabaster flask. It's larger. Your flask is a little bit larger than their little handheld lanterns, but it would have been ornate. It would have been expensive. Um, this, um, this perfume that she poured would have been an aromatic, sort of wonderful smelling nard oil, which is extracted, according to my notes, from an Indian or Arabian root. And it was a, a tremendously experience, uh, ex expensive. This woman would have had to kind of crawl around and get into, in order to um, break this flask, which the text says she breaks it and she pours it over Jesus' head in the middle of this dinner party. Can you imagine what a scene this is? How uncomfortable everyone must have been. And we get an insight into the different reactions. Jesus thinks it's beautiful. The woman is likely weeping. Uh, uh, Matthew and John tell us that it is Mary, uh, Lazarus's brother. So Mary has felt deeply when Jesus um, came to Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Mary um, was so upset that Jesus didn't come earlier to heal Lazarus. But then when, when Jesus heals Lazarus, um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they love Jesus. There's a tremendous amount of emotion that Jesus has attached to this family. And Matthew and John tell us that it was Mary who did this wonderful act to Jesus. But something must have happened for her. On her way over to Simon's house, 
at some point she said something like, what can I do to bless Jesus? In what way can I show my affection for him? In what way can I, can I demonstrate my love for Jesus? And maybe as she scanned all of her possessions, she found something valuable and decided to give that to Jesus. It says it's uh, to break it and to pour it over Jesus' head. It says it's 300 days wages. A denarii was a day's wage. A day laborer would have made that much. Uh, Just to give us some sort of an awareness, Judas betrays Jesus in verses, uh, in the last two verses here, 10 and 11. And he gets 30 pieces of silver, which is about four months wages or about $7,500. That's about the price of a good used car, right? So this lady, Mary, looks around her house and finds something worth three times what Judas betrays Jesus for and goes and breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. This is an amazing gift, an amazing blessing. But look at some of the reaction. Look at verses 4 through 9. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They, They literally yelled at this woman as she's doing this act. They scolded her in front of her. Why are you doing this? What a confrontation. But Jesus said, leave her alone. With authority in his voice, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. She's anointed my body beforehand for my burial. That's how Jesus interpreted her gift. You always have the poor with you. You won't always have me, but you you have me here and now, and she has done what she could. I love that phrase. Was her gift perfect? Was it, um, was it complete to ascribe to Jesus all that he was worth? No. Jesus is worth way more than a bottle of perfume. But she did what she could in the moment to express the full affection of her heart. She has done what she could. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached around the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. What an incredible memorial. What an incredible remembrance that everywhere the gospel is preached, in every culture, in every language, in every tongue, on every continent, among every people group where the gospel is preached, this woman, her extravagant love for Jesus will be told. Then we conclude our passage here in verses 10 and 11. Judas, who's one of the 12. And by the way, John tells us that Judas is an embezzler. He is constantly reaching into the money bag, constantly stealing money, constantly taking from Jesus's own ministry fund in order to pad his own pockets. That's what John tells us about Judas is that he is one of the 12, but he is always stealing money from Jesus. And Judas, who's one of the twelve, verse 10 tells us, goes to the chief priest in order to betray it. And Matthew tells us, he asked them, how much will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? And they said 30 pieces of silver. Which, by the way, was the same price in Leviticus that if your ox, if your neighbor's ox falls into a hole that you dug, in order to pay the price for that guy's ox was uh, 30 pieces of silver. That's how much Jesus is worth to Judas. By the way, with that money, we learn in a few weeks that Judas is going to buy a field. And after Jesus's resurrection, he's going to hang himself in that field. Judas learns the hard way that money is a terrible God. 
money is amoral. Money is not uh, bad. It's not good. It's just a reality in life. But to the degree that money has a hold of you is to the degree that you worship and serve it. Jesus said that uh, you can't serve both God and money. It is a rival deity in many people's lives. Paul tells us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. People will do a lot just to have more money. It's a terrible God, money. Judas loved money more than anything. He's an embezzler. He's stealing from Jesus. How low can you be? I remember a few years ago, we had an orphan jar at our church, and we would regularly contribute money to this orphan jar, and it would go to an organization. And a lot of times, that that thing would be filled with cash, and people would say, yeah, you probably ought to secure that thing. Uh, But we would always say, what's an orphan jar? What person is going to walk in and put their hand in the orphan jar and steal it? And sure enough... One night we had a break-in and the orphan jar was emptied and our laptop was emptied and and there was a a local uh, young guy who uh, unfortunately was addicted to drugs and and could not overcome his temptation to come steal from the orphan jar to feed his addiction. No judgment on that guy. It's a terrible place to be in if, if your only means of getting a fix is to steal from Jesus and the orphan jar. I'm not saying Judas was an addict, but... But that's the degree to which you can imagine he had to stoop in order to say, I know that's Jesus's money and Jesus is giving to the poor and Jesus is helping and Jesus is feeding thousands of people. But I need a little bit of that money. That's the mindset of Judas. And that's what happens for people who love money more than anything. There is no boundary in which they won't cross. I once had a guy tell me, I'm not kidding. He once told me, I think I have found where Amelia Earhart's plane went down in the Pacific. And for a small investment, your church can make lots of money if you'll invest some of the seed money for your church plant into this investment. We would be millionaires. This guy wanted me to invest money. I think it's Amelia Earhart. Somebody's going to correct me afterward and say how dumb I am, but maybe it wasn't Amelia Earhart. But somebody's plane went down in the Pacific, and this guy wanted me to take money that was donated to plant this church and invest it into this scheme to go and dig up the plant. I never heard if he made a million dollars or not, but he came up to me on a Sunday morning and asked me to give him money for that. When money is your God, you will stoop at nothing to attain more of it. It's a terrible God. Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. For the price of a good used car, Judas stole from Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. For the price of field, not even a developed field. It's not even a field as we understand a field to be a large acreage. Just a field in those days was just a little plot that you would plant on. For that price, Judas betrays Jesus because money is a terrible God. So what can we do in conclusion? How can we apply this to our lives today? I think the main pastoral point as I prayed over this passage is for you to assess and for me to assess just how much you value Jesus. How do you put a number on it, right? It can't be I'm willing to give up 300 days salary for Jesus. I'm not saying that it's equatable or that it's something that you should put a price on. But in some way, there's got to be some way that you can measure what Jesus is worth to you. What extravagant displays of love and worship do you give to Jesus? Worship is more than just singing. 
you can sing with all your heart, you can sing with your hands high, you can run and, and dance in such a way, in such an emotional way, and live in such a way that God will not accept that emotional display of worship if you're not living in truth. Worship is more than singing. Worship is not the singing part of our gathering. You can worship with emotion and still not please the Father. You can worship with false motives. You can sing with the wrong motives. You can worship so that other people can see you. You have to understand worship, and worship is simply to ascribe value and love, to demonstrate love and affection and attention to something above everything else. That's why the first commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. That's why when I described worshiping at Owen Stadium, at Memorial Field in Norman, Oklahoma, with 75,000 other screaming college fans who have painted their bodies and screaming through megaphones and willingly paying you know, hundreds of dollars for season tickets, that is a worship service. When the NFL comes, you can come to church and get through it so that you can get to your real worship service, which is sitting at the feet of your television set and watching every moment and memorizing every stat and looking at every detail of a football game. I've had people say to me, I, can, I can't memorize scripture, Gibson, but I can memorize the position and the tackles that a college player had 20 years ago. I can recall all that, but when it comes to memorizing scripture, I just can't find a way to get that in my head. You choose to worship something, to give your time to something, to give your attention to something, to give your affection to something. Think about all the extravagant displays of love and worship and adoration that are included under the topic of worship in Scripture. Think about David. David, when the ark with the presence of God was being brought into Jerusalem, he couldn't contain himself. He took off all of his clothes, right? He dances almost naked. And he's worshiping and singing naked as, as the, the ark of God is being brought into Jerusalem, singing with all of his might. And his wife, Michael, says, oh, how the king has um, exposed himself before all the women today. And David said, I will make a greater fool of myself and worship for God. I have no pride is basically what he's saying. There's no pride when it comes to the worship of the king. I will make my pride, I'll, be, I'll make myself as low and as worthless and shameful as I have to be in order to worship God. David wrote many of the Psalms, love songs, adoration songs to God and to his word. David repented of terrible sin as well, and that was an act of worship. When Nathan rebuked him, he repented. David rejoiced in truth and righteousness despite his own flaws. Another act of worship, think about Jonathan, the son of Saul, who attacked the Philistine garrison in faith. His brave act in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go and attack these uncircumcised Philistines. It could be that the Lord will work on our behalf for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That great act of faith is an act of worship. Attacking the Philistines in faith that God might work and God used him mightily. 
Think of 2 Samuel 24. David goes to Arana in order to sacrifice to the Lord. And Arana says, you can have it. You can have the, the threshing floor. You can, I'll give you whatever you need to make a sacrifice. And listen to David's words. No, I will buy it from you. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. That's 2 Samuel 24, 24. Worship is more than singing. And if you categorize worship as only what you do for 15 minutes before and after a sermon, then your life is lacking in giving affection and adoration and affection and attention. Worship is everything that happens at every part of your life. The attention upon whom your affection is given, the object upon whom you dwell and focus and think. So it's hard to quantify that when I ask you, how much is Jesus worth to you? To the chief priests and to the scribes, Jesus was absolutely worthless, someone to get rid of. To the crowds, they cried out, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. Jesus was worthless. To Judas, Jesus was a means of financial gain. To Simon the leper, Jesus was beautiful, a restorer, someone whom Jesus touched and made him whole, that he could now be around people again. To Simon the leper, Jesus was priceless. To Mary, Jesus and at least a year's salary. What about you? What is Jesus' worth to you? How much do you value Jesus? In which ways extravagant and regular in which ways do you give Jesus worship it's my prayer that you would meditate on that that you would ask those hard questions do you give Jesus of your gifts do you give Jesus of your times for some people it's a sacrifice of time to wake up an hour earlier and to worship to give of, of the word, to give of their prayers, to give of fasting. It's a sacrifice. Romans 12 tells us that we are living sacrifices. Many authors have described how as living sacrifices, we often crawl off the altar. <laughs> it's too hard for us to stay up there, but we are to be living sacrifices, offering to God our very lives. How do you ascribe worth to Jesus? Through gifts? Through radical obedience, through sacrifice, through repentance, through living in purity, through righteousness, through wholehearted devotion, through kingdom work, through service. I asked Ryan a few weeks ago, why do you come here alone on Sunday morning? You could ask any of these guys to come. He said, I don't mind. And I, I set up all the sound equipment. And he, I was here early this morning, and Ryan was here just as early. And one of the things he said to me was, that this is a chance for me to worship. I come here early, and it gives me a chance to focus and to pray and to, and to think and to set up and to serve in such a way that doesn't give any attention, but it's necessary. How could we hear the word if he wasn't here early setting up microphones and chasing away, you know, rain and putting umbrellas and things like that all around? It's an act of worship. How much do you value Jesus? And in what ways do you show him? Mary did what she could in this moment. What could you do today? What could you do this week to demonstrate your love and affection for the Savior? Father, Father, 
thank you for our time together in your word today. Thank you for the challenge of it. Thank you that it is convicting and it is difficult and it demonstrates to us, it's a, it's a mirror. It shows us something about ourselves. And I'm not always pleased when I look in the mirror of your word and see myself as not giving you the honor and the reverence and the worship that is your due. So I pray that you would forgive me. I pray that you would forgive me for not worshiping you in the ways in which you are worthy to be worshiped. Whether I feel it or not, or whether I acknowledge it or not, you are worthy to be worshiped and adored. Forgive me of times when I struggle to sing, or when I struggle to pray, or when I struggle to get in your word, or when I struggle to fast, struggle to share the truth unashamedly. Help me, Jesus, to, like Mary, do what I can to express to you all the ways in which I love you. For many of us, that's in a song, but for more, it is in living a life dedicated to you. Let us do so in such a way that the way we live is a worship song to you. The way we speak is a worship service. The way we treat others, the way we give to others, the way we serve others, the way we forgive others, the way we give grace to others, all of that says, I love you, Jesus. Help us to do that so that you never have to question the truth of our words when we say, I love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.